This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name, of course, is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 112th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, September 28th, and before we get into the news stories, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest PayPal and Patreon contributors this week. So we've got quite a bit. We have Awajit Singh, Bill Fotheringham Jr., David Sindel, David Torres, Douglas James, Frank Berkheimer, Gianna Joel Echobar, Kevin Coleman, Carton Hansen, Mallory McAfee, Mark Aldridge, Mark Russo, Michael Agent, M. Kelly Parker Adelson, Philip Scott St. Clair, Randy Krishholm, Richard Mays, Ryan Sipp, and Travis Toddy. So if you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or visit patreon.com slash humanistreport. So we've got quite a bit of topics to get into today. We're going to talk about the devastation in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit and what you could do to help. Also in this episode, I'll talk about the conservative hypocrisy surrounding the NFL and on the subject of conservative hypocrisy, we'll watch a hilariously ironic segment from Fox News where they denounce media bias. Yeah. I'll also tell you about our last-ditch effort to save net neutrality, Hillary Clinton's Freudian slip, and Bernie Sanders' progressive vision for foreign policy in the United States. And of course, we'll talk about Trump's tax reform plan as well as his broken promise to Haitians now living in Florida. And finally on this episode, we'll discuss CNN's Graham-Cassidy healthcare debate with Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, and we'll talk about how Bernie Sanders whooped Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy's ass. So these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and uh, jump right in because it's a jam-packed show. Not as much topics as last week, but certainly we'll be diving pretty deep into these subjects. So uh, I don't want to waste any time. So uh, let's go ahead and start talking about the issues. Uh, Puerto Rico's up first. Fellow Americans in Puerto Rico are currently facing mass destruction and devastation after Hurricane Maria almost completely wiped out their electrical grid, leaving most of Puerto Rico's 3.4 million residents with no electricity. And when you look at images from Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit, it looks like scenes from a post-apocalyptic movie. I mean, it's just... It's heartbreaking. Now, CNN's Leila Santiago did a report explaining how different regions of the island were affected differently by the hurricane. This woman doesn't even know who I am, but I'm the first person she's seen land here since Hurricane Maria battered the island. The floods, the debris, the lack of power, all making already hard to get to areas even tougher to reach. Even FEMA hasn't set foot in some parts of Puerto Rico. 
we took a chopper from San Juan to remote areas largely unseen, like a small town next to the Guajataca Dam on the northwest part of the island. The dam has been breached and the government ordered 70,000 nearby residents to evacuate. It is here in nearby Quebradillas where I was met with such emotion. The people starving for assistance. She says if something happens to that dam, that could be just as bad as the hurricane itself. Communications are so poor, many are asking us to send messages to their families. From the air, you can see why more than three million U.S. citizens could remain in the dark for months. This, this is the problem. This is why Puerto Rico, 100% of the island, doesn't have power right now. Granted, the infrastructure was vulnerable before Maria passed by, but you can see with these with these uh, power lines down what the challenge is. Uh, they're completely collapsed. Heading further inland toward Utuado, the death toll is among the highest here. This is where we meet 56-year-old Rosario Heredia. She is diabetic, just had surgery, and is unemployed. Now, she doesn't have a home either. Hey, this is what Maria did to her home, water spewing from every corner. By now, she thought help would have arrived. It hasn't. Because she's hopeful that someone will help her. To be able to rebuild this. Flying south to even more remote, Yauco. The roads are blocked, forcing us to find another way to get to this home. Coffee growers Gaspar Rodriguez and Doris Vélez tell us the problem here is food. Most of what they have left has gone bad. He says you work and work and work and it's for nothing because he's lost everything. A common theme on an island of 3.4 million U.S. citizens now waiting and hoping that help is on the way. So when you see that report, not only is it heartbreaking and honestly difficult to watch, but it's clear that we need to take immediate action to assist the people that live in Puerto Rico. But up until this point, Donald Trump has been MIA. I mean, he's basically ignored the huge humanitarian crisis that we've seen unfold over the last week. And he didn't actually even acknowledge the situation until he received a substantial amount of criticism for it. But when he finally decided to speak up about Puerto Rico, he had the gall to actually toot his own horn about how well he responded to Puerto Rico after he's been ignoring Puerto Ricans. The Washington Post explains, President Trump on Tuesday strongly defended his response to the devastation in Puerto Rico, saying his administration was earning tremendous reviews even as fresh news reports from the hurricane-ravaged island shows an unabated humanitarian crisis. Everybody has said it's amazing the job that we've done in Puerto Rico, Trump said during a Rose Garden news conference. We're very proud of it. This was a place that was destroyed. I think we've done a very good job. The president's rosy assessment came amid mounting criticism that he has appeared far less engaged in the recovery efforts of a U.S. territory with a long history of unequal treatment than in those in Texas and Florida after the recent hurricanes in those states. Trump announced plans to visit Puerto Rico next week to get a first-hand look at the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, which killed at least 16 people and left most of the island's 3.4 million people without power and facing serious shortages of food and medical supplies. His comments are just unbelievable. The hubris that he continues to 
exhibit, it, it honestly blows my mind. After you ignored Puerto Ricans and ignored this humanitarian crisis, you have the audacity, Donald Trump, to come out and boast about the great job that you're doing. So, I mean, at least he's seemingly aware of the situation, but he's only speaking out now, not because he cares about Puerto Ricans, but because he doesn't want this to turn into his own Katrina. And let's be honest here, the real reason why he wasn't quick to act here is because since nearly half of Americans don't even know that Puerto Ricans are American citizens, probably including Trump himself, he probably didn't expect this much backlash from ignoring the issue. Now, besides dealing with the outright destruction of their home, Puerto Ricans, you know, as they try to rebuild, will be dealing with an even worse political landscape. Um, and it's only going to get worse, especially when you see how private companies are trying to exploit them. So David Dayan of The Intercept reports, a group of bondholders who own a portion of Puerto Rico's massive $72 billion debt has proposed what they are calling relief, but in the form of a loan. So they're offering a territory mired in debt the chance to take on more debt. The announcement came after The Intercept spent two days reaching out to 51 of Puerto Rico's known creditors, asking them if they would support a moratorium or cancellation of debt payments for the island given the humanitarian crisis. Prior to this announcement, only three of the 51 creditors had so much as donated relief funds to charity or offered sympathy for island residents, all of them banks who actually have to face consumers and so are a bit more adept at handling public relations. No creditor had supported debt relief. So in other words, Puerto Ricans are being exploited here and creditors are capitalizing on catastrophe in an effort to make even more money off of Puerto Ricans. And really, in offering them this money, they're not giving Puerto Rican officials much of a choice but to accept it because, I mean, with the amount of money that it's going to take to rebuild after apocalyptic levels of destruction, I mean, it's going to be astronomical. So they pretty much have to take it. They're backed into a corner. But, I mean, this is setting Puerto Rico up for a political situation that's even worse for Puerto Ricans in the long term because you can guarantee it's going to lead to more austerity and poverty and political corruption, and it's just going to get worse for them. It's heartbreaking. It's incredibly saddening, and they've got a long road ahead. And what makes me even more angry when I think about the situation is that last week, Congress approved a $700 billion military budget. But for some reason, we just can't find any money for Puerto Rico to help out 3.4 million American citizens. How awful is that? How immoral is that? I mean, our priorities are completely ass-backwards in this country. But since our government won't help, well, then that's where we come in. So I'm going to link you to a page on Our Revolution that provides you with organizations that you can contribute to that will use that money to help rebuild Puerto Rico. No strings attached. They just care about helping Puerto Ricans. And to all of our viewers in Puerto Rico that wrote to me right before the storm hit telling me, just how terrified you were. Even though you probably won't see this message, just know that our thoughts are with you and progressives will not allow you to be forgotten. President Donald Trump recently unveiled his new plan to overhaul the U.S. tax system and permanently codify trickle-down economics into law by simplifying the American tax code and giving trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. Our economy cannot take off like they should unless we dramatically reform America's outdated 
complex and extremely burdensome tax code. It's a relic. Got to change it. We have to compete, compete with other countries. The current tax system is a colossal barrier standing in the way of America's economic comeback because it can be far greater than it's ever been. But we're going to remove that barrier to create the tax system that our people finally, finally, finally and want and deserve. Now, you might be wondering how he's going to pay for these tax cuts, but that's not actually the right question to be asking. The correct question here is how you're going to be paying for these tax cuts. And the answer is that he's most likely going to have to dip into Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid in order to fund all these tax cuts for the rich, because according to an analysis by Americans for Tax Fairness, Trump's tax cuts could total a massive 6.7 to 8.3 trillion, three to five trillion of which may not be paid for by closing other tax loopholes and or by limiting tax deductions. The resulting jump in the deficit threatens funding of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public education, and other vital services. The framework is very similar to key features of the tax plans previously released by President Trump and House Speaker Ryan, which is the basis for ATF's analysis. Now, when it comes to specific cuts and costs for each cut, his plan aims to first provide massive tax cuts that largely benefit the richest Americans and biggest corporations through direct tax cuts and indirectly through big cuts in corporate taxes, 80% of which benefit wealthier Americans, according to the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. Second, he'll provide a modest middle-class tax cut largely by doubling the standard deduction, although much of that could be taken away if the tax plan repeals the personal exemption and the head of household filing status. So again, with the amount of tax cuts that we're talking about here to the tune of trillions of dollars, you just can't fund all of that by closing tax loopholes. That's not the way this is going to work. Ultimately, we all know what's going to happen. He's going to dip into the cookie jar that Republicans have been wanting to dip into for a very long time. Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Now, is he going to tell us this up front as he's trying to sell the American people this bill? Well, of course not. And it's not just Donald Trump and the Republicans. It's also Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp who are seriously considering voting for this bill. But cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as a means of paying for these tax cuts for the wealthy? I mean, that's something that is inevitable and you could bet on it. So this is something that would obviously exacerbate income and wealth inequality because by taking money away from the working class and putting more money into the hands of the wealthiest Americans, well, what's going to happen? You're going to crash the economy because when rich people get more money, they sit on that cash. They almost never reinvest it back into the economy. But when you put that money in the hands of normal ordinary working Americans, they spend that money, stimulate the economy, and that benefits the aggregate economy. I mean, all sectors benefit when working class people have more money, but this isn't about actually improving the economy. Donald Trump's only agenda is to cut his own taxes, which is why he's repealing the estate tax as well as part of this plan, because he wants to make sure that when he dies, his kids don't get taxed. Now, when we get into specific percentages here, SV Date of the Huffington Post explains, shareholders of corporations would enjoy a rate cut from the current maximum of 35% down to 20%, according to a White House briefing Tuesday. 
Owners of, quote, small businesses who pay taxes on their individual returns rather than with a corporate filing would pay no more than 25% instead of the current maximum of 39.6%. And the wealthiest Americans would see that top 39.6% rate fall to 35%. As for lower and middle class Americans, three Trump administration officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity would say only that Trump and House and Senate Republican leaders are promising to set rates and tax bracket thresholds so that those taxpayers would enjoy the most savings. This package is completely designed with the middle class in mind, one of the officials said. Tax relief in this package is focused on middle class families. Now, the way that they're selling this is incredibly disingenuous and misleading because even though they're trying to tell us that they're really focusing on the middle class here, well, the details for the middle class, they're not so hashed out yet because middle class people, they don't really get that great of a deal in comparison with elites. But all the tax cuts for the elites, I mean, they have all those details fleshed out, but when it comes to the middle class currently, I mean, they're just thinking that if they double the standard deduction, well, that's going to be good enough for these peasants. But that if you if you remove other exemptions, then it's going to even out. That's not really going to work so well for the middle class. So you're trying to dangle this cookie in front of the middle class and sell them this tax cut for the wealthy by saying you're going to give them more money and put more money in their hands by doubling their standard deduction. But in actuality, they're not going to have that much money in their pockets. Are they Donald Trump? So if you're a middle class person who is excited about Trump doubling your standard deduction, well, you have to consider that this plan will repeal other personal exemptions. And you have to also consider that this will amount to cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So, I mean, this plan has a high cost to lower and middle classes of this country with very low benefits. But when it comes to the elites, I mean, it has high benefits with zero cost to them. So this is nothing more than trickle-down economics. And what Donald Trump wants to do is cement trickle-down economics into law because he wants to make sure that when he retires and when his kids retire, they don't have to worry every couple of years about tax reform and, you know, taxes going up or down. They just want to make sure that they're going to have a really comfortable life. And they're already going to have that irrespective of these tax cuts that they want to give to elites. But they're so greedy that all they could think of is more wealth. That's the only thing that they think would benefit their lives and make them happier. So they'd rather shit on all of us and fuck us over in order to make themselves happy. That's what happens in oligarchies. And that's why we don't give rich people like Donald Trump power over policy because he's going to get in there and give himself and his rich friends tax cuts. So we've got to do everything in our power to defeat this trickle-down economics on steroids bill. But I really worry that the Democratic Party or the so-called resistance, mind you, isn't going to be fighting Donald Trump on this particular issue because we all, we've seen that Donald Trump is trying to butter up Heidi Heitkamp. He's really trying to get in good with Joe Manchin. He's talking with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer currently about working together. So unless we put up a fight at the grassroots level, you're looking at tax cuts to the tune of trillions for the wealthiest Americans in this country who already have it all, and you're going to have to pay for that with cuts to your Social Security and your health care. And that, to me, is absolutely unforgivable and egregious. On the campaign trail, President Donald Trump made a lot of promises, and as you all know, once he was elected, he's broken quite a bit of promises as well. But there's one promise in particular that I want to talk about today because if he breaks this promise, which he seems likely to, I think it would be particularly cruel, especially based on what he sold to this demographic of people 
on the campaign trail. So Miriam Sala of The Intercept reports, President Donald Trump courted Haitian voters in Miami's Little Haiti neighborhood two months before the 2016 presidential election, saying he wanted to be their greatest champion. He had come to listen and learn, he told members of the largest Haitian community in the United States. Haitians, he said, deserved better than Hillary Clinton, whose Clinton Foundation has been accused of profiting from relief efforts following the 2010 earthquake. But if the Department of Homeland Security upends a program currently in place to protect Haitian immigrants, the community will be one more in a long line of folks who went broke betting on Trump. The DHS is poised to send 59,000 Haitians who benefit from a program called Temporary Protected Status back to an island that has yet to recover from a series of devastating natural disasters, including Hurricane Matthew last year and a deadly cholera outbreak. Trump has until November to change his mind. Haiti is one of 10 countries the DHS has designated for TPS based on conditions that temporarily prevent the country's nationals from returning safely or, in certain circumstances, where the country is unable to handle the return of its nationals adequately. For Haiti, the TPS designation stemmed from the catastrophic 2010 earthquake. El Salvador, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, countries ravaged by violence or torn apart by natural disasters, also have active TPS designations. TPS, as its name indicates, is a temporary solution with no pathway to citizenship, but it allows nationals of those countries to live and work in the United States for as long as DHS deems their home countries unsafe to return to. The program, which can be issued for periods between 6 and 18 months, is the statutory embodiment of safe haven for those migrants who may not meet the legal definition of refugee, but are nonetheless fleeing or reluctant to return to potentially dangerous situations, according to a Congressional Research Service report. There is bipartisan consensus in Florida that Haiti is, in fact, not a safe haven for its people to return to. As Haiti's July expiration date for TPS approached, Florida's Republican Governor Rick Scott joined Senators Bill Nelson and Senator Marco Rubio and members of South Florida's congressional delegation in calling on DHS to extend protection for Haitians. Then DHS Secretary John Kelly heard their call, kind of. He extended the program for six months and told Haitians to be ready to return home come January. The DHS is expected to announce whether the program for Haiti will be terminated or extended in November, but despite recent unrest in the country and pressure from lawmakers and immigration groups, the agency seems unlikely to budge. Like DACA participants, many TPS recipients may soon be left with an impossible choice, return to an unstable country which, in many cases, has not been home for decades, or stay put and live in the shadows. Some Haitians, fearing deportation, have journeyed to Canada to seek asylum. Now, really, this story, I think, has two elements. First of all, it's just the sad element where you look at these Haitians who are human beings, they're suffering, and they're here because they can't return home. Now, I think that we should go an extra step and make them citizens, allow them at least a path towards citizenship, because if you've been in this country for so long and you work in this country... Why not make them citizens? Well, we know if you're a Republican, you don't want them to be citizens because they might vote against you. So that's egregious to me. But the other element of this story is just the sheer level of betrayal. I mean, Donald Trump specifically claimed to be on their side and railed against the Clinton Foundation's profiteering of Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. But yet he's not coming through with that promise. He's abandoning them 
in the same way that the Clintons did. And it's so frustrating to me because after promising to look out for them, you have to come through on that promise. But I mean, again, this isn't the only promise that Donald Trump broke. And honestly, it's not that surprising. But look, I'll say the same thing about this that I said about DACA. We need to make Dreamers and these Haitians citizens. I mean, we all own this earth collectively as human beings. So I think that it's arbitrary to tell someone who's lived in this country for so long that they don't belong here permanently like all of us, okay? I think that these Haitians, like Dreamers, have just as much of a right to be here as I do because they also contribute to this country. And we need to start looking at human beings as human beings and stop seeing these lines that we made up uh, these borders that we created in our minds, you know, borders are a social construction. Now, I'm not saying that there's no instrumental or even intrinsic value to borders, but we have to see fellow human beings as just that, human beings, but we don't see it that way. We, we see human beings who aren't citizens of this country as the other. In fact, we see citizens of this country as the other, and it, it's just so frustrating to me as someone who is a humanist. It's time that we come together as a species and look out for one another once and for all. But I mean, in this capitalistic society, we just can't do that because everyone is competing with one another. Everything is economized. And, you know, these citizens of Haiti who came here and have lived here for a long time, who basically know the United States as their one and only home, I think it's so sad to send them back to a country that clearly is incapable of housing them. So... I really hope that this story gains more traction so that way Donald Trump is pressured to do the right thing here. So I already know that the large majority of the country has already moved on from this particular subject, but I couldn't not address the astounding level of hypocrisy that Donald Trump and conservatives in this country decided to express over the NFL and particularly their players choosing to take a knee during the national anthem. So, of course, this all started last year when Colin Kaepernick, then quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, chose to sit down during the national anthem, explaining, quote, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color, adding, to me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. So, in choosing to take a knee during the national anthem, Colin Kaepernick is protesting institutionalized racism and state-sanctioned brutality against people of color. And I think that in doing that, it's a great way to spread awareness about an issue when you have a lot of eyeballs glued to the television screen. So I, I like that he's doing this and I respect him for doing this. However, to some people, the fact that he dared to disrespect the flag is blasphemous. But if you're against so-called outrage culture and political correctness, then you'd be perfectly fine with Kaepernick's form of peaceful protest. In fact, there's a lot of people in this country that are just fed up with political correctness, and Donald Trump is one of the individuals that vocalized his opposition to political correctness the loudest. We have to stop with political correctness. Here's the problem with political correctness. It takes too long. We don't have time. People don't want political correctness. They're tired of it today. And I think that's one of the things that has resonated with me. To be politically correct just takes too much time. So clearly, by that clip, you know where Donald Trump stands on this particular issue. He's against political correctness. So when doing something like 
taking a knee during the national anthem, you would think that someone like Donald Trump, who's opposed to PC culture, would have even more respect for Colin Kaepernick for challenging the beliefs of Americans that currently is politically correct when it comes to the flag and patriotism. However, that's not really the case. Donald Trump was actually triggered by what Colin Kaepernick did, and he expressed that at a recent rally. I'd love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Some owner's gonna do that. He's gonna say, that guy that disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country because that's a total disrespect of our heritage. That's a total disrespect of everything that we stand for, okay? Everything that we stand for. So it seems to me that Donald Trump is now the triggered little snowflake. It seems like he's the one who's getting outraged too easily over something that shouldn't offend anyone. Kneeling during the national anthem has no impact on your life or my life. He's making a statement to protest our country and an injustice that's been going on for centuries. And what he's doing, it may be politically incorrect, but he's doing it with good intentions. But Donald Trump, someone who rails against PC culture, who has been railing against PC culture for years in this country, all of a sudden, he is part of the outrage police because Colin Kaepernick dared to do something that he finds offensive. Now, to remind you, this is how Donald Trump responded when he was confronted with the Charlottesville protesters when neo-Nazis and white supremacists marched to not just protest the removal of the statute of uh, Robert E. Lee, but to also call for a white ethnostate. This is what he said. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. So Donald Trump bent over backwards to defend neo-Nazis and white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville. But when it comes to the NFL and players who dare to take a knee during the national anthem, Donald Trump literally calls for them to be fired. Do you want to know how many of those protesters in Charlottesville Donald Trump called on to be fired? Zero. So if you are a white nationalist calling for a white ethno state, Donald Trump will do everything he can to defend you, and he might even say, hey, some of those people there are very good people. But if you're an NFL player who's speaking out against institutionalized racism, then the president of the United States is going to call you a son of a bitch and call on you to be fired. Do we need any more confirmation that Donald Trump is a racist bigot? Because I think this tells us everything we need to know about Donald Trump. It confirms what we already knew about Donald Trump. He is a racist, bigoted piece of shit. Donald Trump is the quintessential right-wing SJW. Just like students on some college campuses, he wants to shut down the free speech of those he disagrees with. He's just as easily offended by things he doesn't like. But white supremacists and neo-Nazis calling for a white ethnostate doesn't offend him. And he'll actually literally defend them. But 
when people of color speak up and politely ask to stop being killed, then he gets triggered by that. That's what offends Donald Trump. And understand what he's doing here. Donald Trump is trying to shift the terms of the conversation. Colin Kaepernick initially took a knee during the national anthem to protest state-sanctioned violence and police brutality against people of color. And now Donald Trump is saying that NFL players like Colin Kaepernick who take a knee during the national anthem, well, they're really protesting the flag. And according to Donald Trump, if you don't support the flag, then you don't support veterans and you hate veterans. Now, he also tweeted, courageous patriots have fought and died for our great American flag. We must honor and respect it. Make America great again. Sports fans should never condone players that do not stand proud for their national anthem or their country. NFL should change policy. Tremendous backlash against the NFL and its players for disrespect of our country. Hashtag stand for our anthem. So again, he is such a big fucking hypocrite. He doesn't think anyone should ever be allowed to get offended when it comes to the injustices in this country against people of color and against the LGBT community. But when it comes to something like this, so supposedly disrespecting the flag, then he gets as triggered as you could possibly get. Now, it's not just Donald Trump because other right-wing SJWs chimed in to support Donald Trump. So he had a former NASCAR driver and team owner, Richard Petty. He actually implied that people who don't stand for the national anthem should be kicked out of the country. I mean, I really don't think that you can get more triggered than that. And of course, one of Donald Trump's friends and fellow right-wing SJW, Alex Jones, chimed in to support Donald Trump. They've gone from four or five years ago one player, Kaepernick, Bozo the Clown, wanting to be a little movie star and wanting to make Hollywood like him, saying whites are racist and whites are bad and America's bad, even though white saviors, as he'd call them, raised him. And even though he's got $200 million, just from the NFL, I looked it up, it's like $200 million from the NFL, estimated $60 million from sponsors. I mean, $260 million, this is a horrible country! And the predominantly white fans coming and watching you play. And the whites that elected Trump, screw you, racist! And of course, this is all meant to divide America. It's social engineering by the globalists to make whites racist. No, what whites are is lazy, candy-ass, politically correct trash. Like, there's not much worse in this country than white people. You get to the end of the day. <laughs> They're the ones all saying white people are the devil. They're the ones that came up with this race baiting to make everybody racist. I don't want to give an anti-white rant, but if you want one, I got one because I've been watching who's leading all this. And they're a bunch of sociopaths and I'm sick of them. Okay, first of all, Colin Kaepernick isn't claiming to be the victim here. He's protesting on behalf of victims like Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, people who don't have a voice. Since he has a platform, he's using his platform to speak up on their behalf, so he's not claiming to be the victim. Second of all, you right-wing SJWs don't get to rail against political correctness while you simultaneously rail against Colin Kaepernick for not being politically correct because it is extremely fucking hypocritical and it drives me nuts. And finally, the last thing I'll say to Alex Jones is this. You are so dumb. You are really dumb, for real. Now, I would be remiss to not tell you about the left-wingers, supposed left-wingers, who are on board with what Donald Trump is saying here. Because last year, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Supreme Court justice who I love and respect, called Kaepernick's protest dumb and disrespectful. And currently, we literally have so-called Democrats echoing the same exact sentiment as Donald Trump here. The owners of these football teams 
that have these contracts with these players and the conditions these players are going to be playing under has to step in here and say, I'm not going to tolerate it. They can make that deal happen. The only thing that you and I can do right now is turn off the TV if you don't want to watch. Don't go to the game if that's a team you don't respect for whatever reason. I think everyone should stand and show respect for the flag that represents the greatest nation on earth that has shed more blood, lost more, lost more lives for the cause of freedom that you and I enjoy. So, you know, I'd prefer people standing. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, knowing that they probably look like hypocrites, these right-wing SJWs who get offended at everything decided to walk back some of their statements and clarify why they were so outraged. Really, they're saying that they were outraged because Colin Kaepernick chose to protest while he was working. And since technically he was on the clock and we don't get to protest while we're working, I do, but since most people don't get to protest when they're working, well then it's just not appropriate for him to protest. Now they also want you to forget about the time when they supported Kim Davis and her protest against marriage equality while she was working, when she was literally a government official who refused marriage licenses once the Supreme Court legalized marriage equality. And this is because since Kaepernick did something that offended them, and their feelings matter more than ours, according to them, well then they are completely justified in being outraged here. But I mean, it's not just Donald Trump, he's kind of the poster boy for this typical right-wing SJW view. It's conservatives everywhere. I'm sure that you guys have people on your uh, own Facebook feed who were changing their profile pic to the little I stand during the national anthem banner, which just drives me insane because the hypocrisy just, it blows my mind. And it's because they buy into the idea, the idea that Trump is currently pushing that Colin Kaepernick, you know, in choosing to bend the knee during the national anthem, he is doing it specifically because he doesn't respect the troops. Look, if you truly believe that American soldiers are fighting for your freedom, then you're a hypocrite if you don't acknowledge that that freedom extends to protest of the flag as well. This is about a peaceful form of protest against an injustice against people of color that we should all care about. And someone else took a knee before during the national anthem. And that individual is Martin Luther King Jr., a civil rights icon who I respect perhaps more than anybody in political history. Do they not think that Martin Luther King was justified in kneeling during the national anthem to protest segregation? Or are they against him there too? Or is it because is that okay because he wasn't working? I mean, look, the lengths that these conservatives will go to to justify their hypocrisy while simultaneously railing against the PC police on an everyday basis, it makes me so angry. And look, I'm not saying that there isn't a problem with outrage culture in the United States, but if you're going to rail against political correctness, then you need to be consistent and realize that you might be just as triggered as the people you're criticizing. Because yes, it is the case that if you get triggered and offended by an NFL player who is sitting down during the national anthem, you're part of the problem that you rail against all the time. You are a part of of outrage culture in this country, you are a part of the triggered snowflakes who get offended at everything, who try to shut down free speech and debate in this country. So to all of the conservative and left-wing hypocrites who continue to be appalled when students on college campuses try to shut down free speech of speakers like Ann Coulter or Milo Yiannopoulos, 
Well, you can shut the fuck up now because you've shown that you're a gigantic hypocrite. You're just as outraged and triggered as them. So please spare me the bullshit. You don't care about free speech. You are just as easily offended for things that you don't like. And you're not even able to see the level of hypocrisy that you are exhibiting. So to all the right wingers like Donald Trump, shut the fuck up because your true colors were especially revealed this week. So if you've been watching Fox News this week, then you might have seen a segment featuring Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, the serial sexual harasser who was fired from Fox News this year. Now, these two individuals decided to have a conversation that might just be the most ironic conversation I've ever seen from any show on the mainstream media. These two decided to talk about the mainstream media's bias. Not even kidding. So two of the most deceitful disingenuous political pundits in the history of American media decided to rail against the mainstream media's bias, while not realizing that they're part of the problem, if not the biggest problem, when it comes to the mainstream media's bias. I want to ask you about the media. I have never seen any institution in America that is so corrupt, so bitterly ideological, so one-sided, that never talk about, you always said the folks, I talk about the forgotten men and women. People that came from our background or worse. Yeah. They never talk about them. All they want to do is destroy this president 24 7, 365 conspiracy theories. I'm loving to hear Not what you think about it. Not only do they want to destroy President Trump, but anyone who voted for him, anyone supports him on air, or gives him a fair shot. Um, it just goes across the board. Look, we're living in a time where there are no more journalistic rules. And I can back that up 50 different ways, but I'm not going to bore everybody uh, tonight, but I will someday. There are no rules anymore. So your major urban newspapers aren't newspapers. They're left-wing journals, and they coordinate. And the uh, people uh, on the cable news uh, shows on the other channels, they're left-wing top to bottom. If you wear a Make America Great hat into the New York Times uh, tomorrow and you work there, you're not going to be working there much longer. All right. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. I mean... Wow. <laughs> so they talk about the mainstream media's bias against Donald Trump, and they think that, you know, mainstream media pundits not liking Donald Trump is tantamount to the aggregate media establishment having a left-leaning tilt, when that's not really the case. So ideologically speaking, most pundits are actually centrist, and there are many who are right-wingers. And if we're lucky, we'll get one that's a center-leftist. But really, what they're missing here is that there's no such thing as the, quote, liberal media. That doesn't exist. There is, however, partisan media. That is, corporate media outlets that do propaganda for both political parties. Fox News, for example, does propaganda on behalf of the Republican Party, while MSNBC does propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party. Now, CNN simply serves to maintain the status quo of both political parties. So if one party is in power, then they'll tend to suck up to that party more, and they'll just champion mainstream ideas that you could consider conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. Now, this happens, though, because the same companies that advertise on mainstream media shows, like Sean Hannity's show, 
also buy off politicians in both parties. Now, partisanship in the mainstream media really became a problem when President Bill Clinton deregulated the media by signing the Telecommunications Act of 1996 into law. This bill facilitated the consolidation of mainstream media outlets and paved the way for the current media landscape we see today in this country. So that's why we see a partisan bias. So what they're interpreting as a liberal bias is really just the partisan bias that they also do, which is why they effectively serve as the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. Now, the conversation they had about the mainstream media's treatment of Trump was just incredibly hypocritical because over the years, what has Fox News done to Barack Obama? They've given him the same exact treatment, if not worse, than the mainstream media is currently giving to Donald Trump. Take a look. I want to believe. I want to trust. I want to hope for change. But I am really failing to see how this is any different. But he's not going to succeed. Socialism has failed. Our country's less, less safe today. Obama declared the end to the war on terror. Is this the change? that America voted for. You can't break all your campaign promises. To start with this blame America. People, we have to have the conversation of, do you want socialism or not? Do you want universal health care or not? He's a one-term guy. There is real dishonesty in this man. Closer towards socialism. I think he wants a catastrophe. Can this now fairly be called the Obama bear market? What to worry about is you your motivation. Communism. I read an article that said the Manchurian candidate couldn't destroy us faster than Barack Obama. Wreaking havoc on the country. The socialism that you've been waiting for. We have now the extreme left driving the agenda. Now, ironically, that clip was compiled by Media Matters, who is another partisan hack company. But, you know, thankfully, they are rather effective at calling out Fox News hypocrisy. They just can't see their own bias and hypocrisy themselves. But nonetheless, that clip demonstrates that Fox News was very unreasonable when it came to Barack Obama. They never even gave him a chance. Whereas Donald Trump, the media is relatively harsh and critical, but they're, they're, they never call out Donald Trump when they really need to. So, for example, when he decided to illegally bomb a Syrian airfield, that's when the mainstream media basically was unanimous in praising him. We had Fareed Zakaria come out and say that this was the day he became president. I mean, to say that there's a liberal bias is just maddening to me. So of course, Fox News, you know, they're completely hypocritical and they can't see their own bias because they're so biased. But they weren't done railing against the so-called liberal media and they decided to call out liberals who tried to get their shows canceled on Fox. See, I call them liberal fascists because that's what yeah, they are. Yeah, that's a good description. The, mo the most tolerant people as it comes to speech, we defend Bill Maher. I hate Bill Maher. I never, I never in you my You don't know the real Bill. Oh, you do. You, you're from your buddies with him. I can't stand I do, I never said that Kathy Griffin should be fired or any, I don't say that. No, no, anybody, you, I, I don't care what they say. And you don't call for boycotts. You don't turn do the that. dial. You, there isn't a Not right wing one. cabal that does that. No. I mean, the right can get hateful. Everybody knows that. I mean, they can. But there's not an organization that goes out and threatens people and, and, and boycotts sponsors. Now, here's the insidious part. That's bad enough. All right. There's millions of dollars behind that. And those people who are doing it are being paid to do it. Big money. Wait, wait. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Cheryl Atkinson. Great piece. Cheryl Atkinson's book, Smear. You've got to read it. This is a brilliant woman, an honest reporter used to work at CBS. The book is Smear. It'll document A to Z, this big money, and these people will do anything. Bill, every minute 
of every day, we have Rush on later this week, every prominent conservative voice is recorded. They're paid to yeah. record. They're paid to, to transcribe. They're paid to look for the one word, sentence, phrase that they can then use to attack either advertisers or others. Advertisers, that's the And most it's worked. Let's be honest. Well, it has now, worked in the past. Hannity and I have discussed this off camera, and we're going to fight back. And you, I have to give you all the credit in the world. You fought back when they came after you last spring. I didn't, and I should have. But anyway, this is so dangerous to the country. People don't know how dangerous this is because most people aren't engaged. They, they don't pay attention. They just hear things. And these propaganda people throw this stuff out as fact when it just lies across the board. The hypocrisy in that clip is so thick you could cut it with a knife. Bill O'Reilly wasn't fired because liberals wanted advertisers to boycott his show because of what he was saying. The reason why Bill O'Reilly was fired is because it was revealed that he was a serial sexual harasser and advertisers didn't want to be associated with that type of individual, hence why they pulled out. Do you know what I'd like to call that? That's called the free market, bitch. You guys claim to support it, so all of a sudden you don't like the free market when it goes against you. But that's the way the free market operates. If Bill O'Reilly didn't want to be fired, maybe he shouldn't have sexually harassed women at Fox News for years. And second of all, Sean Hannity had the audacity to claim that conservatives like himself defend free speech and they would never call for someone to be fired for saying something that they disagree with. Meanwhile, just a couple of days ago, they're forgetting that their president, who they love and defend all the time, said this. I love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! Now, did Sean Hannity condemn Donald Trump's comments there? Maybe I missed it, but I couldn't find it, and I watched the clip that he did on the NFL segment. But you see, Sean Hannity, he's not objective. He is the definition of bias. He has a corporate bias, specifically the bias that the Republican Party's corporate donors want him to exhibit. So Sean Hannity is such a hypocrite, and I'm not just calling him a hypocrite because I'm a liberal and have a left-wing bias, but the reason why Fox News is so bad is because, one, everything they say here about other mainstream media outlets is especially true when it comes to them, and second of all, their effect on viewers is actually detrimental, so watching Fox News makes you less informed than people that consume no news at all, and that's not just me saying that. That's a Fairlight Dickinson University public mind survey that actually quantified the effect that Fox News has on viewers in a study. So everything that they say about the mainstream media in this clip is especially true when it comes to Fox News. And even though what they're saying about mainstream media bias, you know, there's a kernel of truth to it, they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the particular bias. I mean, the reason why the mainstream media is at an all-time low when it comes to trustworthiness is because of the corporate influence of the media. So the media is supposed to be considered as this fourth branch of government, right? They're an institution that is supposed to check power and authority, but really all that mainstream media outlets like Fox News, which is mainstream, and MSNBC do, is they serve people in power. That's why we don't like the mainstream media. So Fox News here, they're angry with MSNBC and CNN for doing the exact same thing that they do, except I think that their shilling for the Republican Party is probably more problematic than MSNBC's because the Republican Party is a lot worse 
than the Democratic Party, objectively speaking, when it comes to the environment and healthcare and whatnot. So Fox News, I mean, if they really care about media bias, then if they want to correct that problem, the first place to start is with them and by looking in the mirror at their own bias because it is, it's, it's worse than anything we've ever seen before in American media. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is known for his crusade against net neutrality and also, even though we don't talk about it as much, he's also rolling back a lot of the protections his predecessors put into place to make the broadband and mobile industry more equitable. Now, even though it's likely the case that Ajit Pai will be voting with the FCC to roll back Title II net neutrality protections, well, his tenure at the FCC is actually coming to an end soon, and there'll be a hearing in the Senate to reconfirm him. Now, this gives us, as people who want to defend net neutrality, a unique opportunity. So Ars Technica explains, net neutrality advocacy group Free Press is gathering signatures on a petition to fire Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai, who needs a reconfirmation vote from the Senate in order to continue serving on the FCC. The Senate's Republican majority will almost certainly ensure that Pai gets a new term. But Free Press's petition likely won't go unheeded by Democratic senators, who plan to criticize Pai's positions on net neutrality and broadband consumer privacy rules before the Senate vote. Pai's first term on the FCC technically expired in June of 2016, but the FCC's rules allow him to stay until the end of 2017. President Donald Trump, who appointed Pai to the chairmanship, nominated Pai for a new five-year term retroactive to July 1st, 2016. Now, the Free Press petition argues since he joined the commission, he's worked to undo policies designed to protect internet users, committees of color, and poor people. While he's supposed to protect the public interest, he's continuously voted against it and sided with the deep-pocketed corporations like Verizon that once employed him. He's failing at his job, and that means we need the Senate to fire him. And we have an opportunity. The Senate has to vote to reconfirm Pi by the end of the year or he's out. Here's what that means for us. We can get every single member of the Senate on the record about net neutrality and a whole lot more. So I think that this is a plan that is ingenious because... If you fire Ajit Pai, then that will leave the FCC deadlocked, so that way when they inevitably vote on his new rules, they won't be able to pass it, because you'll then have one Republican and one Democrat. So these rules won't go through, and net neutrality will remain in place, at least for the short term. So the thing about his reconfirmation hearing is that some Democrats are already planning to put up a fight. So we have Maria Cantwell of Washington and Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who are going to be calling out FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. And this is incredibly important. If we can get the rest of the party on board with this fight, then not only could that raise a lot of awareness about net neutrality, but it can actually have a huge difference in actually getting Ajit Pai fired. Now, admittedly, this is a long shot, but it's important nonetheless. So I'm going to link to the petition down below and encourage you to sign it. And besides just signing the petition, we also have to make a lot of noise. So if you use the hashtag FireAjitPai and FireAjitSaveTheNet, then hopefully we can make some noise and get the Democratic Party aware that if they really do want to save net neutrality, then they could do so by putting up a fight by getting Ajit Pai fired. Now, look, they have grounds to fire him because he's shown that he's not representing the American people. He is doing the bidding of the broadband industry because he came from the broadband industry and will likely be going back to the broadband industry because I'm sure they promised him 
a really sweet hiring bonus for killing off net neutrality. So this is a cut and dry example of corruption here. And Ajit Pai is only doing what Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T want him to do. And he's completely ignoring the millions of comments submitted by normal Americans who want him to leave the internet alone. So if we can fire Ajit Pai again, we save the internet in the short term. Now, of course, Donald Trump will try to nominate someone just as insidious as Ajit Pai, but if Democrats can block any further appointments to the FCC, then that can basically help us save net neutrality until Democrats retake control of the Senate. So this is really, really important, and we've got to make sure that Ajit Pai gets fired because we know exactly what he's going to do when they vote on the new rules that he proposed. He's going to vote to kill net neutrality with his Republican colleague, and Democrats won't have the votes to save it. So we've got to fire him. Hashtag fire Ajit Pai and fire Ajit, save the net. Please sign the petition below. In an interview with Joanne Reed on MSNBC, Hillary Clinton was talking about the Republican Party, specifically what's driving their extremist behavior and ideological views. And her response here was really illuminating to me. Now, when I show you this clip, pay close attention to her body language and specifically how she tries to choose her words very carefully here. It's pretty remarkable that when, when it was called Hillary Care, when you were first lady and were arguing for universal health care, the Republican response was Bob Dole's plan, which was similar to Obamacare. That's right. The party has changed. Yes. Well, because they are in thrall to their biggest ideological partisan donors. The forces at work in the Republican Party right now are really driven by ideology, uh, religion, um, partisan advantage, and commercial advantage. Now, that, my friends, is what I'd like to call a Freudian slip. Because Hillary Clinton, you can tell there that she didn't intend to say the word donors, but we all know that she was headed in that direction and that's the word that she was looking for and it was too late so she had to say it but then immediately she kind of walked back what she said there. So basically she explained that the Republican Party's behavior is driven by their partisan donors and then she went on to cite other examples as to what's driving their behavior such as religion and commercial when really... You were right the first time, Hillary. You didn't need to walk back your comment. I mean, for the first time in a long time, I can give Hillary Clinton credit for being correct about something. But the reason why she was really apprehensive about saying the word donors, well, it's obvious. Over the course of the last two years during her 2016 presidential campaign, she maintained that Political contributions don't actually impact the behavior of politicians. It doesn't influence their votes. Because when we said that we were worried about what she would do when she was elected because of her Wall Street donors, what did she tell us? Those donations don't affect what I'm going to do while I'm president. They certainly didn't affect Obama's behavior. And to even suggest that I might be influenced by this. I mean, that just makes you completely wrong and the bad person here. Now, after saying that and maintaining that position, she would automatically be seen as a hypocrite if she said that, you know, well, donations don't affect her behavior, but they only affect the Republicans' behavior. So that's why I think, anyways, she kind of walked back that statement. Now, here's the thing that baffles me continuously about Hillary Clinton. I mean, according to her, she's done running for political office. She's not going to do it again, right? I don't understand 
why she's still being fake. And part of it is because, yes, she will continue to influence politics, you know, kind of behind the scenes with her own super PAC. But I mean, you're you're not going to be a politician. So why not just tell us the truth? We both know, Hillary, that the reason why both parties are increasingly unpopular and more people identify as independents is because both parties are bought and paid for by their own partisan donors. So on in the Democratic Party, we have people like, you know, the Soros family buying off Democratic politicians. And then we have on the right, people like the Koch brothers buying off Republican politicians. But really what's devastating is the Wall Street donations and health insurance industry donations and the big alcohol donations that the Democratic Party takes because that's what's driving their ideology with respect to marijuana legalization, single-payer health care. I mean, these donations are clearly affecting policy in the United States. In fact, a Princeton University study by doctors Gillens and Page found that when you factor in what drives policy, it's usually just special interests and elites, and it's almost never American citizens. So literally, Americans have a statistically non-significant impact on policy outcomes in America. That's what they found. So it's very clear, we all know at this point, if you're paying attention, what is really the driving force behind the ideologies of both parties and the behavior and votes of both parties. It's big money donors, but Hillary Clinton didn't want to say this because she didn't want to look like a hypocrite. And again, Hillary, you're done running for office, so why not just rip off the mask and show us, since you have that insider look, what is really driving ideology in this particular country? I mean, Citizens United was literally about Hillary Clinton. She was cited in that case. Hillary Clinton was right for a fraction of a second when she said that donors do drive the Republican Party's behavior, but of course she can't say that because what drives the Democratic Party's increasingly corporatist behavior? Donors. Donors. So <laughs> I really I really enjoyed that clip a lot, and I'm surprised that more people didn't talk about it because I felt like it was really enlightening. Uh, and look, she was, she was just playing dumb when it came to political contributions, obviously, in 2016. We know that money in politics is a corrupting force, and that's why we've got to get money out of politics. Now, we have to do that in multiple ways. Not only do we have to overturn Citizens United, but that doesn't go far enough. We need a constitutional amendment to make sure that we publicly fund every single election in this country. And states really can help out by putting up matching funds so candidates don't feel compelled to raise money from special interests. So we've, we've got to get money out of politics because we all know, it's obvious if you're paying attention, money corrupts. It corrupted Hillary Clinton, it corrupted the Republican Party, and regardless if politicians want to pretend like it doesn't, we all know what's happening here. Over the course of the last year, Bernie Sanders has laid out a progressive policy vision with regard to healthcare, education, and economics. And now he is laying out a new vision for foreign policy that he hopes will one day influence the Democratic Party in a positive way. So Stephen Miles of The Nation writes, Sanders finally delivered the speech many of us have been hoping to hear from him or anyone else for quite some time in laying out a principled and bold progressive vision for recentering U.S. foreign policy at the core of a progressive platform. Senator Sanders has given voice to those of us who have always believed that our values don't simply stop at the water's edge. Taking to the same stage where Winston Churchill delivered his famous Iron Curtain speech almost 
just 70 years ago, Sanders' challenge to the progressive movement and indeed to all Americans was to redefine for the 21st century a vision for America's role in the world. Laying out the questions he sought to answer, Sanders asks, at a time of exploding technology and wealth, how do we move away from a world of war, terrorism, and massive levels of poverty into a world of peace and economic security for all? How do we move toward a global community in which people have the decent jobs, food, clean water, education, healthcare, and housing they need? As Sanders admits, these are not easy questions, but they are ones we cannot afford to ignore. Sanders rightly connects the dots between an exploding Pentagon budget and Republican attempts to take health care away from tens of millions of Americans in the name of fiscal responsibility. He makes clear that a progressive foreign policy also means that we cannot convincingly promote democracy abroad if we do not live it vigorously here at home. And in the way he does so well, Sanders reminds us that no progressive view of the world can tolerate the massive wealth inequality both here and around the world. After reframing the issue, Sanders dives into the meat of the matter in a way that should ring true for every progressive. He reminds us that hundreds of millions live in poverty, dying of preventable diseases, while arms makers rake in trillions from weapons of war. He reminds us of America's history of interventions from Iran to Chile to right now in Yemen that have had a habit of having devastating results, and he reminds us that there is a path between endless war and isolationism, that America's greatest successes came when it helped support not just our allies but also our former enemies, as we did with the Marshall Plan. To bring this all home, Sanders points to two diametrically opposed visions of American foreign policy that played out in recent years. In reminding us of the horrors of the Iraq War and juxtaposing it with the unbridled success of the Iran nuclear deal, Bernie helps make clear that this is not some esoteric debate. These are debates happening right now here in Washington about just what path our nation should choose to confront the challenges we face abroad. So to me, when I hear Bernie Sanders push a progressive vision with regard to foreign policy, I find that really encouraging because I think that Bernie Sanders is probably the second best in the entire Senate when it comes to foreign policy, with the first best being Rand Paul, of course, because I think when it comes to foreign policy issues, Rand Paul has been correct almost 100% of the time. Bernie Sanders is a close second because for the most part, Bernie Sanders doesn't necessarily agree with his Senate colleagues about every single intervention. But with that being said, and you all know I love Bernie Sanders, we've got to be objective here and call him out because even though right now Bernie Sanders might be one of the best when it comes to foreign policy in the Senate, well, the best still isn't good enough because Bernie Sanders isn't being as bold as he needs to be when it comes to foreign policy because in 2015 he stated that he would support the idea of the U.S. remaining in Afghanistan even longer. Um, additionally, he states that after we defeat ISIS in Syria, that he would consider taking out Assad. And back when the UN held a symbolic vote earlier this year condemning Israel's illegal occupation of Palestine, Bernie Sanders, along with all 100 senators, signed onto a letter created by Marco Rubio condemning the UN's vote, which basically threw Palestine under a bus and condoned the actions of Israel's right-wing government. Now, don't get me wrong, everything that he said in that speech was great. But the thing is that if you're really going to talk about a progressive foreign policy, then you've got to walk the walk. And up until this point, I don't think Bernie Sanders has walked the walk. Now, again, I find it difficult to criticize Bernie Sanders here, not only because I like him, but when it comes to Israel, I mean, he's one of the best. But again, the best is not 
good enough. And furthermore, I mean, when he was questioned about his decision to sign on to this letter, basically condemning the UN for a symbolic vote to condemn Israel's illegal settlements that they keep building, he basically didn't have any meaningful rebuttal to it. To see Israel attacked over and over again for human rights violations, which may be true, when you have countries like Saudi Arabia or Syria. Saudi Arabia, I'm not quite sure if a woman can even drive a car today, okay? So I think the thrust of that letter is not to say that Israel does not have human rights issues, it does, but to say how come it's only Israel when you have other countries where women are treated as third-class citizens, where in Egypt, you know, I don't know how many thousands of people now lingering in jail. So that, that's the point of that. Not to defend Israel, but to say, why only Israel? You want to talk about human rights? Let's talk about human rights. Should the UN shield Israel from criticism? No, of course not. Okay. This letter also uh, denounces the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement yeah. known as BDS. Um, you, in your lifetime, are a longtime proponent of nonviolent protests. Yeah. Um, this, in the eyes of many Palestinians, is the effective way to get Israel to comply with international uh, law and respect Palestinian human rights. Do you accept that? No, I don't. I mean, I, look, I respect. People will do what they want to do, but I think, again, I think uh, our job as a nation is to do everything humanly possible uh, to bring Israel uh, and the Palestinians and the entire Middle East to the degree that we can together. But no, I'm not a supporter of that. Palestinians will say they've resisted violently, they get punished. They resist non-violently with BDS, they're also punished. June marks 50 years of occupation starting 1967. We know the occupation has no end in sight. We know that this is a government that doesn't plan on ending it. Um, and talks have failed for a quarter century. What, if not BDS, is left for the Palestinians to do? Well, what, what must be done is that the United States of America must have a Middle East policy uh, which is even-handed. I think we desperately need to rethink U.S. foreign policy in this country. Specifically, we need to just call out U.S. imperialism. It's not working. It's never worked. The war on terror has created even more terrorists, and it destabilized the entire world. I mean, the the international community is even less secure today than it was when we invaded Iraq in the first place. So Bernie Sanders He's not bold enough on foreign policy. I'm sorry, he's just not. And I love Bernie. You all know I love Bernie. I think there was a Reddit thread that referred to me as the quintessential burnout Bernie bro, and it's kind of true. But when it comes to foreign policy, we've got to be real here. We've got to call out Bernie Sanders and call a spade a spade. Bernie, being a true progressive on foreign policy means that you are a non-interventionist and you only support the idea of war if we're defending ourselves. Now, all of our wars in recent years have been offensive. We didn't invade Iraq to defend ourselves. We didn't invade Afghanistan to defend ourselves. It was Saudi Arabia who technically attacked us on 9-11. So I find it so frustrating that we truly don't have anyone who's perfect when it comes to foreign policy. Rand Paul might be as good as it gets, although off the top of my head, I don't know if, what he thinks about the Iran nuclear deal. Because I think that that was something that was phenomenal. I mean, that was diplomacy in action, but Republicans attacked it because they've been wanting to invade Iran for years. Now, thankfully, Bernie supports that. He supports diplomacy. And if Bernie Sanders were to one day become president, I have no doubt in my mind that he would be a breath of fresh air when it comes to foreign policy. I think he would be very much akin to Jimmy Carter. But 
right now, currently, Bernie Sanders has got to be more bold. He's got to call out Israel. And to his credit, he did talk about cutting aid to Israel and potentially ending aid to Israel as a means of pressuring them to end their illegal occupation of Palestine. But I really want him to be unequivocal in his condemnation of U.S. imperialism. I want him to go a step further and say we should pull out of Afghanistan and I want him to really condemn Israel in a meaningful way because I think that matters. I mean, I think that treatment of the Palestinian people, that's an issue that progressives care about. So Bernie Sanders here, again, I kind of sound like a broken record, but he's he's really got to get real about foreign policy if he truly wants to lay out a vision that actually is progressive. So I support what he's doing here, and he's still the best, and I think that the Democratic Party, by and large, can learn from Bernie, but Bernie still needs to listen to the collective progressive movement and what we're saying about U.S. foreign policy, specifically with regard to U.S. imperialism and just how detrimental it is. As you all know, Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy are the individuals that decided to spearhead the GOP's latest effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now, thankfully, their bill failed miserably, and I think the best part about this whole ordeal is that Right after Susan Collins announced that she would not be supporting their bill, they were forced to then go on CNN and debate the merits of their bill against Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar. So it already wasn't a good night for Bill and Lindsay to begin with, but it got even worse for them once they took the stage because Bernie Sanders absolutely decimated them during this debate. I mean, it wasn't even... A close match. I mean, he wiped the floor with them. He handed them their asses. And it, it was just so great to watch, especially after they were trying to promote their draconian bill that would strip millions of their health insurance coverage. Now, the reason why they lost this debate was namely because they trotted out the same tired arguments and expected those same old arguments to resonate at a time when momentum for single payer may be at an all-time high. And their arguments against single payer primarily focused on the same three key points from Republicans, choice, socialism, and big government. And this is what the Republican Party tends to do, because since they can't really debate with Democrats or progressives based on the merits of their argument, they have to resort to fear-mongering. And that is exactly what they did during this debate. And they tried to make this whole debate about Medicare for All, and I'm glad they did because it backfired tremendously, not in their favor, of course. But you see, the reason why Bill Cassidy at least thought that we should listen to what he had to say, even though he didn't have a substantive argument for his bill, was because he used to be a physician. So uh, you can trust him. And he made sure that we knew he used to be a physician. Now, I'm a physician. I know I can kind of read through that code. I'm a doc. I understand. Again, I started this as a physician. I am first a doctor. When I was a doctor, I learned. For 25 years, I worked in the public hospital system of Louisiana. Uh, again, I've treated folks like you and my hat's off. I worked for how many years in a public hospital for the uninsured? Probably most of my patients were Democrats. Now, even though Senator Bill Cassidy tried to legitimize himself here by reminding you over and over and over again that he's a physician, well, really, he has no credibility on this particular issue because the arguments that he made in favor of his bill and against single-payer we're downright ridiculous. When the patient has the power, the system lines up to serve her. And when the bureaucrat has the power, it first serves the bureaucrat. Now, this is a debate about who has the power. Is it you, the patient, or is it the federal government? 
The narrative on the other side is that you don't have the capability to care for yourself, that your governor is corrupt, scheming to take away your protections if you have a pre-existing condition. And they think the federal government taking control of your life is a better way to go. The logical extension of that, unfortunately, is the Charlie Gard case. The Charlie Gard case in which the single payer of England said, the, decide, the, life, the decision over the life of your child is too important for the parents to make, and then the child died. I will tell you, if it's a decision about you versus the federal government, we side with you. Those who oppose us and those who want single payer, they choose otherwise. The big government shouldn't be in charge of healthcare for anyone because those self-serving bureaucrats, they don't really care about our healthcare needs, they only care about serving themselves. <laughs> <laughs> See, because every time we go to the DMV, we all know that the person at the DMV counter, they're trying to scam us, right? Unlike those health insurers who are certainly only motivated by profit, they're not trying to scam us, but bureaucrats are trying to scam us. That's not really how this works. There's no profit incentive there for bureaucrats, Bill. So what you're saying doesn't make any sense. If you go to the private industry, which is what you want, then those individuals are motivated by profit. Now he states here, this is a debate about who has the power. Is it you, the patient, or is it the federal government? Well, it's currently neither because the private insurance companies have all the power in this country. Not only do they control healthcare, but they buy off politicians and their shitty plans have to be subsidized by the federal government because they don't provide us with enough benefits. And one thing that irritated me about Bill Cassidy here is that he also brought up the Charlie Guard story. And we're going to continue to hear about this story from Republicans. And the worst part is that when they talk about this story, they pretend as though the British government chose to end treatment to Charlie Guard when this was a decision made by his doctor after coming to the conclusion that further treatment wouldn't save him and would be unnecessary. And if Bill and other Republicans actually cared about people dying because they were denied health care, then why don't we ever see them talking about the thousands of people in the United States that die every single year because they don't have health insurance? Why don't they mention that? Why don't they ever talk about the Americans that go bankrupt even if they do have insurance but had to have a procedure that wasn't covered under their current plans? Why don't we ever hear Republicans talking about that? It's because Republicans like Bill Cassidy don't actually give a damn about you. They have an agenda. And what Bill Cassidy's agenda here is to do is to promote the interests of his donors in the health insurance industry. And really, Bill Cassidy here, he's the prototypical politician that lies, obfuscates, and dodges questions in order to promote his bankrupt ideas that actually don't serve the American people. And there was a perfect example of this when Bernie Sanders brought up his bill to allow us to import drugs from Canada. And the way that Bill responded to Bernie Sanders was probably one of the most masterful dodges I've ever seen. He just completely avoided what Bernie Sanders talked about and went on some other rant about an entirely different subject. Last year, the five major pharmaceutical industries made $50 billion in profit. You got CEOs in the pharmaceutical industry who make millions and millions and millions of dollars in compensation and one out of five Americans cannot afford the medicine they need. Are you going to join me in saying that Medicare should negotiate drug prices with the pharmaceutical industry, which is what every other major country on earth does? Are you going to join me in saying 
that pharmacists should be able to get the same exact medicine in Canada or abroad at a fraction of the price they have to pay for in this country. Are you on board that legislation? I've heard Bernie say in a VA committee hearing that if we can't afford a medicine, the, the, the government should just take over the intellectual property. It should commandeer, it should commandeer the manufacturing plants, the distribution change. It should become the pharmaceutical company. Lindsey Graham is right. Bernie's the most honest person in the, in the Senate. He's a socialist and he believes it. And he believes that the creativity of the pharmaceutical industry is not important. Oh, we can take that, but where will the cure for Alzheimer's come from? If now when there's a cure, the pharmaceutical company knows that their profit will be commandeered. I can tell you, it's a cheap, it's a cheap fix to commandeer. And the price is tremendous. There won't be that cure for Alzheimer's. There won't be that cure for cancer. There won't be because there was a short-term grab. I, I, there, there are solutions, but it is not socialism. Bernie didn't mention socialism, Bill. He didn't ask you to join him in nationalizing pharmaceutical companies. He asked you whether or not you would support his bill, which has bipartisan support, mind you, to allow Americans to import cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. And since you didn't have an answer, you chose to invoke the big bad socialist boogeyman. Well, we know that you decided to dodge that question like Neo from the Matrix because you've got shit. You have no substantive answer to that particular question. And Bernie Sanders was kind enough to give you a second chance to answer that question. Uh, and you chose, again, to not give a substantive answer. Through Medicare, which purchases huge amounts of money, is a bad thing. You think it is wrong for pharmacists to be able to buy cheaper medicine, same exact brands, from Canada. Are you going to come on board that legislation? I don't know what you're really talking about, about taking over drug companies. What we, want to do, what we you. want to do is lower the outrageously high prices in this country. I've given you two approaches that can work. Reimportation, Medicare negotiating. Are you on board? Reimportation does not work. <laughs> Canada has 10% of the population of the United States. You could take the entirety of Canada, shake it like a piggy bank, and all the drugs would come out and it still wouldn't be enough for us all. Can I no, there are ways no. to address this. I'm there are the ways. Senator Canada. I can see Canada from my porch. Okay? <laughs> and I can tell you this, that the drug prices in Canada are half uh, what they are uh, in our country. And that's why Bernie's been involved in this. Uh, Lindsay's good friend, my good friend, Senator McCain, mm -hmm. has He's a bill with me uh, that would allow for this reimportation to bring in less expensive drugs. Uh, it has strong bipartisan support. Senator Collins is supportive of this bill. Um, so that's what we'd like to work on. So what I really liked about that particular clip is that towards the end there, Amy Klobuchar stepped in and really demonstrated just how big of a scumbag Bill Cassidy is because for her and Bernie Sanders' bill, I mean, someone like Ted Cruz, a right-wing extremist from Texas, even thought that we should allow our citizens to import drugs from Canada. But Bill Cassidy won't do that. So that's how big of a scumbag he is. He's a bigger asshole than Ted Cruz. And that goes to show you just how much of an ass he made of himself during this debate. That was just, that was just one of many clips. I mean, it was an hour and a half long debate. But I'm glad that Amy... Klobuchar popped up there because I also wanted to talk about her as well and specifically her performance. Even though she didn't make an ass of herself during this debate, her behavior here was pretty telling because for some reason, she hasn't co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill and during this debate, she wouldn't even dare to utter the words Medicare for All. When you hear these, there are only two choices here. That's not true. 
there is another choice. That choice is right in front of us where we have had those debates. We brought in Republican and Democratic governors. And this is something that will be one of the fixes that we can make to the Affordable Care Act. One way to do it would be Senator McCaskill's idea. Another idea would be Senator Schatz. We have been working together on an option uh, that you could buy into for Medicaid. That's a very efficiently run program. That's a bill that's going to come out uh, in the next month or so. And then Senator Murphy of Connecticut is also working on one with Medicare. So these are options. I'm just tired of hearing about this false choice, <laughs> that it is just uh, the bill that's on the floor right now or, um, or one other bill. And Senator Sanders and I have the same goals here. Amy is so tired of hearing about this false dichotomy of choices between just flat out repealing the Affordable Care Act and moving towards a single payer healthcare system because there's other options. I mean, we could try to fix the Affordable Care Act and move towards a public option and whatnot. Well, you know what, Amy? There is no dichotomy of choices, especially for Democrats like you. There's just one choice. You need to co-sponsor Medicare for all because that's what your base wants. I mean, the Democratic Party base, when you look at poll after poll, they overwhelmingly support the idea of single payer. So if you're not on board with that, then you're not really giving us a choice. You're trying to walk a fine line between what the base wants and your donors want. Medicare for all is what Canada has. It's what other countries have. And in not supporting it, you are showing that you don't really care about the American people. And look, to her credit, she's gone further than other Democrats in actually proposing things that might improve the Affordable Care Act. But unless we take that profit motive out of healthcare in America, we're never going to get a system that actually works for us. Now, why is it that Amy Klobuchar refuses to embrace Medicare for all, even when some of her more right-wing colleagues in the Senate have already chosen to do so? Well, it's because Amy's not a socialist. I worked in the private sector. I'm no socialist, okay? Well, if you really did work in the private sector, Amy, then that should make you a socialist, especially when you see how much power and influence private companies continue to exert on our government, specifically people like you. But look, again, I don't want to be too harsh on Amy Klobuchar here because she is better than other Democrats. She's not the worst that the Senate has to offer in terms of Democratic politicians. Uh, and her overall performance during this debate wasn't terrible. I was just, I was irritated and disappointed in her unwillingness to even say Medicare for all. I mean, going into this, I knew that she didn't co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill and didn't want to do that, but to not even say Medicare for all, I found that really frustrating, but she she did do a good job at least debating, especially when she completely made a fool out of Bill Cassidy here with regard to one of his talking points that he used over and over throughout the debate. First, let me say that 15 governors do support our bill. They actually think that they can do better in their state than the Obamacare law is currently doing. If a governor is engaged, yes. she or he yes. gets the people in their state yeah. enrolled. We Sen get the governor engaged. Senator Klobuchar. Let me tell you what. <laughs> your own governor, Senator Cassidy, your own governor opposes this bill. Ouch. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was incredibly brutal, but nothing can compare to the performance of Bernie Sanders because hands down, he was the show stealer here tonight. Uh, and what this next clip here, I think this was really the, the death blow. I mean, to me, it was the highlight of the entire debate because it was when he really put Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy in their places and they had absolutely nothing to say. First of all, <laughs> when you ask the American people about whether or not they like Obamacare compared to your plan, overwhelmingly, the American people like the Affordable Care Act. 
How many people know second who of all, one second, one second. <laughs> second of all, it is easy to beat up on big, bad federal government. Guys, do you know what the most popular health insurance program in America is? It's not the private insurance industry. It is Medicare. Medicare, yeah. That's big, big. Which is falling apart. (laughs) Senator Cassidy and I are both on the Veterans Committee. Go out and talk to veterans. And what the polls show is that veterans are very, very positive toward the VA. Doesn't have problems? God knows it does. But veterans feel very good about it. It packs as the second most popular healthcare program in the country. Okay? So the point is it's easy to say Obamacare isn't perfect. Everybody knows that. But the truth is that what people in this country see is a health insurance mm. system designed to make insurance companies and drug companies huge profits. They want a cost-effective system that in fact deals with the needs of our people and not just the CEOs of large corporations. And that is why I personally believe, yeah, that if Medicare is working well for seniors right now, we can make it work for every man, woman, and child in this country through a Medicare for All program. Bernie Sanders, ladies and gentlemen, completely stole the show there. Now, let me remind you that this was supposed to be a debate about whether or not Congress should repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, but Republicans and Bernie Sanders made this debate about Medicare for All, and really the only person trying to make it a debate about the Affordable Care Act was Amy Klobuchar, but really this effectively became an hour and a half long advertisement for Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. And the Republican Party, or certainly the individuals that were there, Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham, they thought that they would have a leg up on Bernie Sanders if they continued to invoke the big government socialist boogeyman, but it didn't work at all here because Bernie Sanders knew what arguments they would introduce, and he had the right rhetoric to effectively combat their bullshit. So I thought that Bernie Sanders, he stole the show here, he put them in their places, and overall, I mean, it really shows that Momentum is on our side, especially when we have someone like Bernie Sanders arguing so persuasively in favor of Medicare for All. So what I thought would be a disappointing debate was actually really great because it just showed that Bernie Sanders knows what he's doing here with Medicare for All. And I'm so glad that Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy embarrassed themselves during this debate because after proposing that draconian bill that would strip millions of Americans from their health insurance, they deserve to be embarrassed because they are scumbag politicians completely beholden to the health insurance industry. The other day, I stumbled across an article in the Huffington Post that I agreed with 100%. So this article was titled, Yes, Medicare for All is definitely a litmus test for Democrats. And basically, this article reiterated everything I've been saying on this show for the past couple of months. Now, the reason why I uh, agree with this article 100% it's because I wrote this article. <laughs> so, uh, as you all know, uh, I've been a contributor to the Huffington Post for about a year now, and they don't always or they don't typically promote articles that contributors write, namely because there's not very much editorial oversight, if any. So we can basically just publish whatever we want. Uh, but they do tend to promote articles that 
get a lot of attention. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to link this article down in the description box. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to not only read it, because I think if you're a progressive and you enjoy this show, then you'll, en you'll, you'll enjoy what I had to say there. But I'll also encourage you to share this article through the article's Facebook and Twitter links, because if you do that, that will encourage the Huffington Post to actually promote this article on their front page or potentially in their blog section, which would be great. Not only because, you know, it would give this message notoriety, but because it would be a message that the establishment might actually hear because, you know, there are Democrats that do read and write for the Huffington Post. And I think that they need to know that Medicare for all is something that progressives aren't willing to take no for an answer on. So I hope you guys all enjoy it. So far, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback and you guys have been incredibly kind to me about this article. Uh, and I, I truly appreciate it. So uh, if, if you don't mind, uh, please share it and certainly feel free to read it if you don't want to share it as well, because I think that, uh, what I said here is important and I stand by it, which is obviously why I wrote the article. So, uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it. Well, that's all I got for you guys this week. I want to thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. And as usual, I want to send a shout out to all of our Patreon patrons and PayPal contributors because you all help the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. And I want to get to a couple of other topics that I couldn't cover this week. We had Roy Moore when the primary for the special election in Alabama. Uh, and he's a complete lunatic. So I don't have time to talk about that today, but please look into Roy Moore. He is as bigoted towards the LGBT community as I think you can get in American politics today. Now, also, we had some great news with regard to Saudi Arabia. They finally decided to move at least one step in the right direction, and they are now allowing women to drive which is huge because I, I've been following this issue since uh, my early days as a grad student. And women in Saudi Arabia are so disadvantaged because they can't drive. So oftentimes they have to hire a private driver to escort them to and from work if they do work or around. And that's really expensive. So this is going to be a huge boost to Saudi women and it will increase their purchasing power. Uh, and just give them the autonomy that they deserve. So, you know, it's a step in the right direction. Saudi Arabia has a long ways to go before they catch up with the rest of the modern world. But, I mean, I I'm really excited to see this. And shout out to all the activists in Saudi Arabia, like Manal al-Sheriff, who's been protesting and getting arrested driving in Saudi Arabia for years now. You know, because this this ban was draconian. And I, I'm, they should be embarrassed for it, but I'm just glad that now they're making it right. So anyways, that's all that I got for you guys today. Uh, I'll see you next week. <laughs>